he's really not interested in telling the story of this dystopian world, but rather 20-somethings just struggling to live and work and survive however they can. And the world isn't actually that unrecognizable from the world that we live in today. The human struggles are universal. Like the movies where multiple characters go off and do their own thing, but there's something that connects them all. In this case, it's the bar, it's the strip club where everyone gets to see the girls. Where everybody knows your name? Yeah, it's basically like Cheers, right? It's Cheers, except with strippers who have x-ray wires on them. We were at the Cannes Line, big advertising festival, the French Riviera. There was a taxi strike that got so raucous, the taxi drivers were blockading the helicopters that were trying to shuttle people to the airport. And I happened to get the last taxi in town, and you hitched a ride. Yeah, I, I seem to remember an airport lounge conversation where we mostly argued about comic books while drinking. That is definitely what happened, and six years later, here we are. Still stuck in my basement drinking, not on the French Riviera. While my cat screams for food, even though I just fed him. 100 or so comic books later. In which we witnessed at least five childbirths. Seven, if you count the birth of my children. Yeah, that's right. I was in the closet watching while that was happening. That was a great experience for me. Thank you for inviting me to that, Raman. Anyway, when is this goddamn pandemic going to end so we can stop this fucking podcast? <sighs> I'm Roman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And 100 or so episodes later, we are still drinking and talking about comic books that you have probably not read. Yet. Not yet read, Roman. I have faith in our loyal audience. I don't have faith in much, Ryan, but I do have faith in Auntie Pinky. I too believe in Auntie Pinky. <laughs> our number one fan. <laughs> our number one fan, one, number one of, of like five, but... I'm grateful for everyone who's listening. Especially Amitosh and the guy in Norway. (laughs) (laughs) This week marks the 100th episode of Quarantine Comics, the podcast where my wife and kids are always wondering why I'm always yelling in the basement. So we decided to do something really special. Meth. (laughs) No, Ryan, it has to be comic book related. Meth off of a Peanuts comic strip. (laughs) Okay, Walter White, how about we just read something special to commemorate the occasion of our 100th episode? I guess we could do that, too. Maybe we could read something that is super epic, something that tells a historical drama that spans the ages. Yeah, and perhaps something that thematically matches our amazing literary accomplishment in audio journalism. (laughs) Literary accomplishment. Yeah, but yeah, 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 we'll do that, what you said. Okay, so I got it. What about a graphic biography of the 100th Pope, Pope Matthew III of Alexandria, Egypt? Oh, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of popes, Roman. That's me. Pope Matthew uh, led the church when Egypt was part of the Ottoman Empire when the pope and his church faced many pressures from the sultan. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. But how about we just pick up some comics by comic superstar Paul Pope with the number 100 in the title? 
how about we pick two comics by Eisner award-winning wunderkind Paul Pope with the number 100 in both the titles? That's a deal, but only because I like the way you said wunderkind. <laughs> German double major. This week, we are reading 100% by Paul Pope. And we are also reading Batman Year 100 by Paul Pope. Such creative range. In 2006, DC decided to tell yet another tale of Batman in a far-off dystopian future with Batman Year 100. The year is 2039 in Gotham City, but not the Gotham we know and love from the mainstream DC universe, but rather Paul Pope's universe of continuity from his hit series Heavy Liquid. The Batman is but a forgotten icon from the past, is wanted for the murder of a federal agent. And amid the chaos, Gotham City police detective Gordon, grandson to the former commissioner, discovers that the man they are chasing shouldn't exist at all. And before that, in 2002, Paul Pope released 100%, revisiting his same heavy liquid universe of his previous work in an alternate future New York. But gone are the criminal conspiracies. 100% simply focuses on the intertwining struggles and relationships of six characters surrounding a seedy strip club, no-holds-bar boxing matches, and a manipulative art scene with tea kettles. Across much of his indie alternative work, also including books like Heavy Liquid and Battling Boy, Paul Pope has become known for a unique, emotionally charged style. His stories often present a futuristic world where everything is seedy, technology is ubiquitous, and privacy is pretty much a thing of the past. Yeah, so pretty much today as we know it. (laughs) Pretty much. So, Ryan, what'd you think of these comic books with the word 100 in the title? (laughs) I had actually read both of them some years ago, and I, I, I was disappointed with, with them when I first read it, but reading it again, I, I definitely liked them better, which is weird because especially 100% feels like a book that's- It usually of, goes the other way on this podcast, Yeah, yeah. And, and also like 100% is specifically, it definitely feels like a book of, it was about people in their maybe early 20s, early to mid 20s. So, and that's when I read it, but yet reading it now, I actually appreciated it a lot more. One thing that still stuck with me is Paul Pope's like fantastic art. Like he really puts you in the scene. Like he'll put you in a rave. He'll put you in a shower having sex with somebody. He'll put you in a filthy apartment. He'll put you in like, the freezing streets of New York. You feel like you are there when you read a Paul Pope comic. Like I never really encountered another illustrator, another creator whose work is just as evocative as Paul Pope's. Yeah, there's like an electricity about his work. I don't think I, I don't, I've read Batman Year 100, and I think I read Battling Boy and Heavy Liquid, but I never read 100%. But it's, at first, his work is really off-putting, actually, from when someone who grew up either wanting hyper-literalism, Jim Lee, Alex Ross, or weird, cartoony, be it Mike Allred, Gene Lun Yang, even Brian Lee O'Malley, and Paul Pope threads the needle in between them. So, like, his work evokes something. It's not real. It's almost surreal. And I don't think I appreciate it as much back then as I do now, maybe because I've just read more shit. So, and and the story, it's it's funny. Um, We made a lot of fun of Frank Miller in a previous episode about how when we read it, it was so awesome because we were in our 20s and it's this hyper-masculinity. And... While Paul Pope is too cool for school, the strokes, grown up Scott Pilgrim, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it's uh I don't think I got how cool it was back then. And I think now as an adult, like 
looking back wistfully <laughs> on, on this lifestyle, this gritty thing that's very different from my suburban <laughs> career. I there's just like this admiration for it. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm living vicariously through something when I read it. There's just no one who really draws the way Paul Pope draws. And you're right. You know, it 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 feels very loose. His lines are just very fluid. It's like he's just taking ink and just splashing it on the page, and that energy comes across. But at the same time, it's very controlled. Like he knows exactly what he's doing. He's putting the blacks down exactly as he wants to put it down. And I actually admire that the ability to just be so loose and so controlled in your storytelling and there's this frenetic energy in every page that feeling of being i'm talking about 100 in particular but like being in your 20s and poor and living in new york city and going to these different clubs or meeting up with your friends and eating shitty takeout food. He really captures all of that. But and, and I understand that maybe this is not a world you want to step into because it does feel very gritty. It does feel almost dirty. But that speaks to the merits of the work and of Paul Pope's abilities. And he actually captures that. It works really well with his depiction of Gotham and his depiction of Batman. There is a labor to his Batman. Things are not easy for his Batman. His Batman is sweating and straining and really at the limits of what he's able to do physically. And that, again, comes across every time you see that character. And I think it's it's just a really cool way of, of depicting him. Yeah, I feel like his Batman, again, when I read Batman Year 100, it might have been one of the first things I read by Paul Pope. But Back then, I didn't appreciate that, oh, this is in the world that he's built, the Paul Popeverse, if you will. Like, But his Batman is probably the only, the closest I've seen to this grounded street-level Batman. And again, I know that happens a lot in the movies now, but th this is 20 years ago. His Batman is probably only as the only person who matches how grounded Paul Pope's Batman is, is Frank Miller. It's... His costume is just not gimmicky. It's not high tech. It's like tightly laced military boots, just carabiners. And his Batmobile's just a tricked out motorcycle. There's nothing fancy about this Batman. And they're not even sure if it's going to work. The big trick with Batman's Batmobile, his bike, essentially, is that it can fold up and hang upside down. So when he needs to use it as his escape route, he, he's running through the tunnels. He can activate the Batmobile, and which is actually like a really cool concept since it, the Batmobile actually looks like a bat when it's not like in a use. Bat. Yeah. Oh, and one thing I loved, it was off-putting when I first read this several years ago, but the use of the fangs. Mm. He's like, I have to convince these people that I'm a demon. So he literally puts in the teeth and, and his sidekicks on the radio are like, uh, I can't understand you. He must have the teeth then. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a great touch. It actually kind of reminded me a lot of Batman Imposter, not just the grittiness, but also the they're like showing the behind the scenes of the character's theatricality. In Batman Imposter, he has these zip lines that make across the different skyscrapers that make it look like he's flying. And here, of course, he has this teeth that he uses really for a theatrical effect when people don't know who he is or what he is. The teeth are very scary, very compelling. Of course, we see him actually put him in like dentures and he can't talk properly when he puts it in. And then, and then also to your point about Batman's costume, I, I actually like how he's in this futuristic world and yet Batman's costume is probably the least futuristic Solo thing. Yeah, yeah, it's... In fact, in even the, um, the literally, he's wearing like boxer shorts as because superheroes wear their underwear on the outside. Batman is wearing 
uh, boxers shorts. And actually, that's a throwback to the origin of why superheroes wear their underwear on the outside. It's because they were meant to convey the boxer shorts because, of course, superheroes were like, were, were physical and they were like boxers. So it's actually a throwback in his design of the Batman. And what's also interesting is this Batman, and DC's done this a few times. We now see this trope playing out in comics and in TV shows adapted from comics of what if it was the world as it is today where no superheroes have ever existed and one crazy person shows up in a costume? And that's what this world is. It's like, okay, it's it's the near future, 2039, and it's a world without superheroes. It's just the fucked up world that technology has brought us. And 100 years ago in 1939, which is when Batman was created by Bill Finger and this other hack named uh, Bob Kane. There was a guy, I think there's a legend, there was a guy dressed like a bat, I think, but that was back then. That's not real. That's just some weirdo. Mm. And that's what this that's what this Batman exists in. A world where there was a weirdo a hundred years ago, and all of a sudden this weirdo shows back up. And I, I, I thought that was an ingenious way versus Dark Knight Returns, Batman Beyond, a lot of these other future Batman stories where it's like, we are steeped in the history and lore of Batman having been around and what must have happened versus now there was a weirdo a hundred years ago and there's another weirdo again. I, I did appreciate the same guy. I did appreciate the ambition of Paul Pope's approach. He always has these really interesting ideas, this whole idea of this character of, like, of the Batman who somehow has been existing for the past a hundred years and haunting Gotham. And no one knows about it, and he's finally being exposed. It's just a really different way of approaching the Batman mythology. And even in 100%, which also is like, you can see it on the fringes, a dystopian version of New York City. It's, he doesn't really lean into it like he does with Batman Year 100. But you see these like federal agents patrolling parts of New York and shutting off parts of the street for like reasons that are not clear. So he's very good at conveying this oppressive society. Um, and he's very good at introducing these interesting ideas. Oh, in in, in, uh, there's a 100%. One of the main characters is a dancer at a strip club, but it's not just an ordinary strip club. This is a strip club where I guess she like... In the future. Where's the these, these, this device that actually shows her insides as she's dancing and people are getting off to that. So Pope always has these very interesting ideas that he wants to play with. And my actually biggest complaint is that he never really goes far enough with it. It always ends up just as like, backstory or background it's world building it's like well that's the gimmick like yeah some things are it's it's world building but when you introduce an idea like batman has been around for hundreds of years or i work in a strip club where all the men like to see my guts that isn't just something that you can just put in the background that's something that you actually want to play around with do something with it it's not just to me like a it's, it's lost is almost a detail the way Pope treats it. He teases it as as big a thing, but at the end of the comic, it's just recedes into the background. And that's one of the things I actually find frustrating about his work. It's like the ideas are there, but he, he doesn't always really lean into it. And I wish he would. But here, it's the gimmick. It's one of the gimmicks of Paul Pope. It's he likes to sketch this fantastical world where get over it. These are the facts of how the world works. But then he tells these really grounded stories in the universe, right? So Batman Year 100, it's a Batman action movie in the weird fucking Paul Pope universe. For all intents and purposes, 100%, it's not a rom-com, mm. but it's like a young adult drama of 20-somethings finding love and finding meaning in their life. 
yeah. with all the weird fucking sci-fi hijinks. Despite the differences, I actually had the same problems with both 100% and Year 100, mm. which is that the drama never seems to be altogether that dramatic. The stakes, as we tell, like, we always bitch about this, but the stakes are not high. These guys want to, in Batman Year 100, they want to know who Batman is. Batman is Bruce Wayne. We all know that. And who, but there is no Bruce Wayne in the world of Batman year 100. So what is the consequences of them actually learning his identity? Plus that then you'd have to lean into the whole question of, well, how has he been living for the past hundred years? How has he been haunting Batman? He's a man clearly because they've been trying to find his identity. Gordon discovers his identity, but at the same time, maybe he's not a man because He's been alive for the past hundred years, haunting. So there's these two separate, it's like he wants it both ways. He wants to have these dramatic stakes of, oh, I'm going to discover who Batman is, which is a little bit more standard superhero fare. And then you've also got this, what's the mystery of Batman? Having been alive for a hundred years, the Batman of Gotham City, who is he and what is he? How is, it's almost like these two different conflicts that don't really belong in the same comic. And that was my issue. And it's like, I think, Pope needed to choose one or the other, or at least just figure out how those two ideas intertwine. And mm-hmm. I don't think he really did. I think he just present. And the other thing, like, there, what is Batman trying to do? Oh, well, ultimately, he's still trying to solve this mystery, but there's this mysterious bacteria or virus called the flesh eater. It eats all the flesh. But it's never really a threat other than, oh, yeah, that's what everyone was after, the secret of the flesh-eating <laughs> virus that was manufactured in a lab. So you've got these three conflicts, actually, and they don't really come together. They feel almost disparate, and each one in and of itself is never resolved in a particularly satisfying manner. It's He creates an itch that he never lets you yeah. scratch. Just, just, just to go a little deeper. And again, that's the frustrating, weird thing about Paul Pope that gets under your skin. I, the art does it, even his plot choices. It's enough for me. Well, I, I want to go on a tangent with Batman really quick. Two things that was really reminiscent of is other comics, right? So this idea of the consequences of the revelation of Batman as Bruce Wayne. At some point, I really want to read or have you guys read sean murphy's batman white knight series because the the sequel to it curse of the white knight digs into the consequences of the world finding out bruce wayne as batman so without getting into that but that's a major plot point that comes to a head and they do scratch that itch right the other thing the other thing that's really interesting about the how is this guy 100 years old and again paul doesn't talk about it you never actually see bruce wayne but it might just be this premise that Batman is an idea and maybe even supernaturally the idea and the myth and the legend is what keeps him young and Bill Willingham's fables another comic I want to read on this podcast all of the heroes in the comic they are kept rejuvenated and young based on the power of their legend yeah so it's this idea of what what fable scratches the itch of is your power comes from your legend and if you think about the the staying power of Batman how nine ten movies have come out he's been around coming up on 80 years now there's a staying power to the concept and so i feel like year 100 is almost a veiled commentary on that batman will always be around there will always be a legend of batman whether it's campy adam west or dark chris nolan robert pattinson i and and pope does address that like the whole thing with The teeth, we were just talking about the teeth, the whole theatricality of Batman, how he manages to keep his legend alive, the mystery alive. But then you have this completely grounded version of this guy who's just a man, he needs help. And so you still got this mystery of 
Batman having survived for a hundred years and he's still Bruce Wayne somehow. Who is Bruce Wayne in this universe? I'm not quite sure. And again, and then you've got the whole, this, this thesis about the myth that never dies. And again, it's these two ideas that I can see him playing with it, but it doesn't really bring them together. They don't converge in a way that feels particularly satisfactory. The other thing I enjoyed about Batman Year 100 is the metatextualism, and this was in the early 2000s, of almost like getting ahead of the WMDs, fake news, surveillance state, Edward Snowden universe that we've been living in for 20 years. <laughs> like, it hits a lot of that shit on the nose. And it's yeah. really disturbing because this was written in the early 2000s before when when everything was awesome social media was going to save the world right like this is pre-social media actually like it's just it's scary how how hard he hit the nail on the head pope was pope was prescient and even again with 100 percent, you get a sense of that dystopia even though it's never really at the forefront it's like flavored in the background which i think is fine he's really not interested in telling the story of this a dystopian world, but rather 20-somethings just struggling to live and work and survive however they can. And maybe it's not so much the world isn't actually that unrecognizable from the world that we live in today in, in 100%. Um, well, the human struggles, the human struggles are universal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, and I do, it had this, like, the you know, like the movies of Robert Altman where you have like multiple characters and they go off and do their own thing, but there's something that connects them all. In this case, it's the bar, it's the strip club where everyone gets to see the girl's guts. Where everybody knows your name. Yeah, it's basically like Cheers, right? It's Cheers, except with except with strippers who who are like have X ray wires on them, and not on them, but in them, in them. That's that, no, actually, that's, it's on, it's on them, it's on them because it's MRA technology. But she does add. There's one scene where the manager of the bar asks the girl, like, "How deep are you willing to insert the probe?" As you dance. <laughs> no, I, I think I think it was about MRI penetration, but okay. <laughs> oh, was that MRI? I thought there was I thought that was actually it, like the, a physical. The, the, the tech is MRI. Okay. Ball. Yeah, see, so that's another thing that it's a cool idea, but it he never really it's more like just background. It's like this interesting little flavor. And I feel like Pope does that a lot. Even with a one hundred percent, it begins, for instance, a girl is murdered. And somebody else freaked out. She's like, I'm going to buy a gun. Oh, man, you shouldn't buy a gun. That's, that's kind of dangerous. Ma- black market, but black, yeah, black market, market gun. in the future, all guns are banned, right? Right. But that's still like New York City, right? You're not allowed to own a gun in New York City anyway, so like not but when too... The, but, those ba- those, but those bans happened after Paul Pope wrote it. Did it? I thought it was always... I thought firearms were still banned when during 100%, or dur- during the time he wrote 100%. Now I'm looking it up. When did NYC ban... Guns, nineteen eleven. Oh, <laughs> okay. That was yeah, the early days of Batman, as it were. Not really <laughs> before Bob Kane was born. But my, I guess my thing is, there's a lot of setup to interesting stuff, and it never pays off dramatically. Literally, you have Chekhov's gun. You've introduced a gun, as Chekhov says, a gun needs to be fired in a story. You introduce a gun, you got to fire it at some point, and she does fire it accidentally and totally off screen, and that's the end. There is no real dramatic consequences to her owning the gun. Similarly, the guy accidentally, he's dating a girl, takes her panties, doesn't know what he's thinking when he does it. And you're like, oh shit, she's going to discover it. Inevitably, she does discover it. And what happens? Then they make out in the shower. 
So I was like, okay, so that you you have this like moment of like, what the there's I remember the, the moment he's like, what the fuck am I doing? Why did I take this? I like her. We have this connection. That's not cool. And after all that buildup, nothing comes of it. And that's what I found so frustrating about a hundred percent. It feels like he sets up stuff really well and it doesn't go anywhere. It's not like I'm I'm surprised by where it goes. I'm surprised that it just nothing happens. No, there's no consequences. It doesn't push the story further. It's just like a thing that happens and it feels like a bait and switch. Like I'm like, hey, I'm setting this up. Oh, but nothing's gonna happen. It's I it's the gimmick, it's the world building. I'm okay with it. Honestly, I feel like the there's three couplings that happen, right? The busboy and the stripper, the boxer and the manager, and the artist, the tea kettle artist, and I guess the other bartender, and the gun owner. That, we'll call her the gun owner. <laughs> that was the one plot that didn't go as far as the others, but they were all. I didn't mind it. It was not comically Seinfeldian, but it was just all of their stories were intertwined because they all knew each other, right? The boxer and yeah. the bet that he made, he gave the money to the tea kettle boyfriend, and blah 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 blah. Like it's fine. Because I just lived in the world, and it was like watching an interesting hour and a half drama. That's I guess just in this weird, set in this weird universe. I guess yeah, that, that's Pope's strength, right? He immerses you in this world. I just wish he could have immersed me like emotionally in the world. That's what I was missing. Like I felt like I was in there, I was observing things, and it was so cool to be in these. I felt like a scenester, just flipping mm-hmm, through these mm-hmm. pages. Like you're yeah, with these yeah, people. Yeah. It's like such Pope has such talent in terms of being able to just wrap his world around you. And if I were emotionally engaged with whatever these people were going through, with their dramas, with their tragedies, with their disappointments, this would be like one of my favorite books ever. But I just wasn't. Like, I was just like, oh, okay, so nothing's going to happen with your little fling. Oh, okay, so the big conflict is you, you know, don't want your boyfriend to take the grant money because he's going to be selling his soul. Oh, okay, well, it's like feels like despite how well he initially sets it up the ultimate human drama isn't quite worthy of the real palpable world that he's creating you know what's what's interesting is so many of paul pope's works are 100 percent pun intended his he's the writer he's the artist he's the plotter he's the inker he's the blah 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 and and again i think a lot of the comic fandom We've never seen shit like this. Never mind how electric it is, but these weird worlds. And but when you hold it up to cinema drama, novel drama, fiction drama, sometimes there's holes. And it's you as a very literary guy, you're poking holes in it. Whereas you read most reviews by comic book readers and they're like five out of five, 100 percent. This is the mm-hmm. best thing I've ever read. Because he hits that visceral nerve, he's got all the gimmicks, he's got the electric art, he's got the weird sci-fi dystopia with the commentary, but, right, there's a but, and the question is, if he could ever either level up the writing chops, or just pair with a writer, who who knows how to resolve these things, who knows how to push a little further without giving everything away. Because what's funny is, as a fanboy, it's good enough, it's pretty fucking good, but... I don't start to doubt it, Ryan, <laughs> until you tell me what the doubts are. 
Well, I don't want to. I don't want to take away your pleasure. I mean, this is just how I responded to it. Like, because I, I, mean, you're making, I, but you're making good points. You are making I've, good points. Well, I've always been like Pope has always been one of my favorite illustrators, and I always feel like his work is like, despite it being called a hundred percent, it's like seventy five percent there, right? <laughs> I think that's the episode title. <laughs> I mean, does, it, does that mean like does that mean our podcast only has seventy five episodes now? We just have to throw away twenty five of twenty five of them. Well, it's not, and it's not that his writing is bad. Like his dialogue, I, I really actually like like hearing his his characters banter and argue, and they feel like real breathing people who are who live messy and slightly destructive lives. But it's just when it, he needs to stitch it oh, all together. So maybe- so that's, maybe maybe it's not Paul Pope that's at seventy five percent. Maybe that's the real life that he's depicting is only at seventy five percent. Yeah, but what you you owe it to your readers to I don't know. I feel that feels a little bit like an excuse to me. Like oh yeah, well it's, it it ends like in a rather boring state fashion because that's how it would in real life. Well, I mean, why am I fucking reading? Why this? am I reading this? <laughs> right, and what it's the promise of a great story. If the promise of it op- how does 100% oh, open? Oh, he broke the contract. He broke the contract. Yeah, yeah. How does 100% open? Oh, there was a girl who was found in the alley. She'd been beaten to death. Oh, shit. That is a crazy heavy opening. And what's the next scene? It's the people who work at the bar next door having this conversation about this girl who died, and they're really upset. And you set that up. And you are obligated to pay it off in some way, or at least keep that drama high, keep those stakes really, really high. And in a way, and actually, I forgot about the dead girl. After she buys a gun, it's really <laughs> about everybody else's life. No one really references her again. We don't know. I think they mentioned it was her boyfriend that killed her. But for all of that, for she's there to support this bang opening. And then it, it just peters out. And... Batman Year 100 opens with Batman. He's on the rooftops. He is tired and exhausted, and these dogs are chasing him, and these cops are right behind the dogs, and he is at his wit's end. And it is just an amazing sequence. And then how does it end? It ends with expedition about a flesh-eating virus that actually would never even make an appearance. So that's my issue, right? It's like, oh, you, you you promised so much. You promised the sun and the moon and the stars, and all I got was a little bit of sand. How do you really feel, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I I just think Pope, Pope could be like one of the best. That's 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 my disappointment. I want to ask, which of these did you like better, one hundred percent or Batman? You're one hundred. I I like them both, but for different reasons. I, I like all of these different messy lives in one hundred percent. It was definitely doing something different than Year 100. And I just loved the the feeling of being in these different divey bars and these mm, crummy yeah, apartments. Yeah. He's so good at that. And there's a scene where these characters are kissing and there's this extreme close-up of their lips. And it just feels like, hey, I'm making out with you guys too. I I hate to bring this back to Weezer, but it's these two books illustrate the Weezer conundrum. So Weezer's first two albums are the Blue Album, which I would argue is one of the greatest rock albums ever made, and Pinkerton, which is actually Weezer's best album. How can those two things be true, right? Greatest rock album ever is not their best album. And then Pinkerton, their second album, is their best album. And like I said, I've read a few of Paul Pope's other things, but I think Batman Year 100 is one of the best Batman stories I've ever read. But I think 
100% is one of the best Paul Pope stories I've read. Yeah, year 100, it makes you feel like what it, what it would be like to be Batman. And it, and it isn't particularly yeah. pleasant. It's grueling. <laughs> it's, it's really yeah, horrible. It's visceral. It's visceral. Yeah, yeah. And, and you feel like the physical sacrifice that he's going through. Really, really quick, really quick, shout out to our friend Paresh. The only person in Batman Year 100 that I want to be is Dick Grayson <laughs> or Robin. Yeah, because he's built the motorcycles, but he doesn't have he's to. He's just like, hanging out. Yeah. yeah. He puts on the costume once, ever. Yeah. But that alludes, alludes to maybe he might try to find some other identity. Who knows what that might be? Well, I uh, think he's the grown up. He was Robin, and now he's just the guy behind the screen now. Hmm. He doesn't do anything. But yeah, I really like, you know, just the pages of year 100. It just does very different things compared to 100%. He's still putting you in the world, but this is a world of high-speed pursuits of like flying over the dirty alleyways and feeling exhausted as you're running from the cops who are trying to kill you. It, it almost feels like the, the first half of the book is like a chase, like you're in the middle of a chase and it's really exhilarating. And it's when the book slows down and says, oh, I've got a story that we got to convey. That's when you're like, or when I was sort of like, ah, all right, we can, that's, that's probably the weak part of this book. <laughs> Which ones did you like better? How did you respond to, to each of them? It's the conundrum. I like them both equally. One, I think is, I think it's up there with one of the best Batman stories I've ever read because it's so visceral and it's so raw, but it's not his best. I think 100% might be his best work because it's, it's quintessential Paul Pope in the electricity and the fucked up world building that comments on everything we're experiencing but it's a deeply deeply personal story and you me i'm drawn to just the human drama and it was good enough for me i because to your point you feel like you're in it with these people you feel their frustrations they're real it's almost too real to your point it's not fantastical it's mm. not escapism other than the fact that it's reality tv i'm just experiencing these other people's problems instead of my own but i relate to all of their problems yeah, I, I will say that there really is no other illustrator like Paul Pope in terms of just putting you into these scenes and making you feel like you are a part of it. It's just a rare thing. And even despite my reservations with some of his, I guess, narrative decisions, I do feel both of these books are definitely worth just like getting a coffee or a tea and just sitting back and just immersing yourself in his world. Absolutely. So, Raman, what are we reading next week? Well, Ryan, next week's episode comes around the famous holiday of Easter. So oh. I think we should read something thematically appropriate. I, how about Marvel zombies to celebrate the resurrection of Christ? <laughs> no, man, we're still in the samurai spring. So I'm thinking something with bunnies. How about Usaki or Usagi Yojimbo? Hell yeah. Stan Sakai's multi-decade epic about a samurai bunny roaming feudal Japan. And he is also based off of Musashi Miyamoto. We read a little bit about that real-life warrior when we read the first volume of Vagabond. And so now we are going to see what he looks like as a rabbit. Nothing says Easter and Samurai Spring like a samurai bunny. Like a samurai bunny. Next week on Quarantine Comics. I'm hungry now for rabbit stew. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. 
give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. Consequence.